Welcome to episode 50 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. To check out all the shows, search for STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Store, and you can download an app that will allow you to listen to all the episodes, check out the show notes, and share the episode with somebody who you think might need to hear it. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member, veteran, and military family suicide. So here we are. It's episode 50. The episode's going to be a little bit different from the previous episodes and that we're not going to be bringing on a guest. The guests are us. During this series, Shauna and I have had some great conversations with a wide range of guests. Shauna, I'd like to hear what you think about the project overall and, and where we started, maybe where we're at now. Well, it was an incredible experience, first of all. I'm so grateful to Military Times for working with us on this, to launch this. It's been amazing working with you. First, I just want to acknowledge you coordinating so many details that often don't get noticed but are critical to making something like this happen. You've been a steadfast, thoughtful, reliable friend and partner throughout this whole experience, and that's probably one of the best takeaways for me. And beyond that, just the content and what I learned this year, it was almost like a course in just the suicide prevention, the state of the field, where we are now, and perhaps where we need to be moving in the future. It was very important to you and me when we picked the guest. We had a lot of conversation about who should come on the show and really balancing things, making sure that we brought on the voice of people with lived experience and wisdom from walking their own valleys or walking with people who have suffered and people that are researchers, leaders in the, the mental health space, and leaders in the DOD and VA as well. So we had this whole range of experts, including those with lived expertise, that gave us just a bird's eye view, like a landscape view on suicide prevention. And that was, I felt really in a, a privileged position to be able to listen to everybody share their best wisdom in 30 minutes or less. What is the idea that you think needs to happen? What do you think isn't working? You had these themes in the questions you would ask them during the interviews, and really it was designed to pull us through the state of just awareness of a problem and into what's actually working, what's actually getting traction on the ground. And in this context, we heard about so many really creative, interesting potential solutions, which was probably one of my favorite parts as well. I think for me is the project is pretty much, I think, what we conceived of it at the beginning. And really, and maybe for listeners who may not know, the genesis for me was that I wasn't able to attend the 2019 VA DOD Suicide Prevention Conference. I wanted to, right? But that's where a lot of these conversations happen is when professionals get together and have these conversations. One of the challenges is that all of that great information at the conference, maybe if people share the PowerPoint slides, it's there, but it's in the minds of the experts and it's in the minds of the people who attended the conference, but there was really no way to to go back and capture that. And I think that this is really it. This could have been or, or really was, and, and a lot of our guests were presenters at this conference or national conferences. And so it's the idea of how do we take the 
expertise and the lived experience and capture it in such a way that's not just relevant now, it'll be relevant three or four years from now. It's going to be a resource for individuals. And I think for me, that's really one of the things that's been satisfying. It's honestly impacted how I look at suicide prevention, both nationally and my local community. And and so I, I think that the show has really done exactly what I had hoped it would do. And like you said, it was great to be able to have a, a partner with you and, and obviously partner with Military Times, because as we've often heard, both from our guests and from listeners, the part where we would reflect on the conversation added even more depth to the context that they were talking about. I mean, so I, I think that the format of the show and just the topic of the show, I think it worked really well. Yeah, I do too. I really came to this as did you as a learner. And if it didn't impact your understanding of suicide prevention approaches, that would be something interesting. But for both of us, of course it did. As we listened to the experiences of people across the country, it was really important to us to scale these insights and help people gain specific examples of what is working, not just the sort of aspirational principles of things that we'd like to see happen in the field as a whole. But what are, where are people getting traction with this? Because I know, like you, I'm somebody who has done a lot of work on the ground where the rubber hits the road. There are things that work, but it depends on the population you're serving and tuning yourself to that population and using culturally appropriate strategies is what works. And so there's no one size fits all. And and I think, and that's definitely another thing that we had hoped, and maybe sort of the hypothesis we went to this, and the hypothesis was proven, that one of the things that we hoped for the show was that to be able to get that broad range, but that we would get some emergent themes that came out of the various guests, that regardless of which direction they approach this from, that they're all saying the same thing in different ways. And, and I'm really gratified that's exactly what happened. Going over the conversations, we identified nearly 200 Hundred quotes that fit into 13 different categories. And we're not going to be able to get to all 13 categories in this episode, but we wanted to talk a little bit about the big ones. So one of the first categories that emerged is the fact that we know that no one individual organization could solve this alone. So the need for coordination and collaboration was a common theme among our guests. A great example of this is a clip that we're going to play from Army Master Sergeant Tom Cruise from episode 28. I would love to see the big organizations like you mentioned, like AAS and SAMHSA and all these guys that are supposed to be the policy and, and procedure makers. Just like we in the military, you got your higher chain that writes all your orders and tells you what to do, and it gets all the way down to the little guy that's got to do it on the ground, right? And there's always a disconnect in between there of what's really got to get done and who wants done what. I think that's the same thing here. We've got a lot of great organizations at the top level that can do the policy and the funding and the Capitol Hill talks and that, but it also has got to come from the communities, right? I really think this quote highlights the need for and maybe the disconnect between collaboration between the national strategic planning and the local operational implementation. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So Tom Cruise here is using military analogies, which I think are really important for suicide prevention as a whole, whether we're talking about serving military service members, veterans, or civilians. There are people across the country that are now experiencing a level of trauma that's similar to what many of our service members and veterans have felt for many years in the wake of this really challenging, frankly. And so trauma and thoughts of loneliness, isolation, all of the things that that come with that have been part of this year for so many Americans. And the solutions for that are varied as the particular group you're serving, but the concept of coming together 
in effective teams and running this like an effective chain of command would in terms of the information from the top being integrated and coherent with what happens on the ground and for those at the top levels to be bringing what they have to offer to support the the impact of the work on the ground is really critical. I think for all of suicide prevention, there are a lot of analogies that would be pertinent to the military community that would actually be wise for us all to consider for suicide prevention strategies as a whole in this country. Sure. In, in the military terminology, which it may turn people off, but you, you've got Amazon with Jeff Bezos at the top, but you have structure around people making making strategic decisions, national organizations like Boeing or, or things like that, that are impacting all the way down to the individuals that are packing boxes in the distribution centers in Amazon, for example. So it's one of those things where in a lot of the problems that we solve or problems we don't even know we have, there is a structure from the individuals who are doing strategic level planning all the way down a direct line down to the individuals that are doing operations on the ground. And that doesn't seem to be the case with suicide prevention. And I think we need to be able to get there. One of the things I want to call out here, and I wrote about this in my book, Warrior, is I think there's a socialization for people who become professional mental health counselors, whether psychologists or social workers or LPCs to feel that we are the holder of the solution. I think it it is something that is perhaps instilled in us during our training years to think that we have all of this knowledge, all of this expertise, and we come into the room as the, the holder of the solution. And I think that's a dangerous mentality, actually. And so listening to all of these interviews over this year has really been a confirmation of my sense that nobody's doing this intentionally, but I really want to call out that Mental health providers are absolutely assets and part of the solution, but they're not meant to be the solution and they're not meant to be saviors here. You have said, Dwayne, one of the, my favorite quotes of yours I always quote you on is, the only veteran that you can save is yourself. And to me, that's a, a humbling reminder that a mental health provider, no matter how many years they've had in school, is not ultimately empowered or should be thinking of themselves as the savior or the solution bearer. When we work together and we each offer what we have to bring and we come alongside, that's going to be so much more powerful. And this is something when I often talk to my clients, and really this relates to transition out of the military, is when I was in the army, I was fully aware that I was a very small cog in a very big machine. At the same time, I and all the other small cogs cogs were very important cogs in that machine. And so I think that's this idea of just because all of us frontline workers aren't the solution, we are also maybe paradoxically an integral part of the solution. And I think that goes to what you were talking about. So there's, again, coordination and collaboration, one of the biggest emergent themes that came out. Another area that we heard a lot of talk about is the public health approach. People may be confused about it or think that it's just another fancy buzzword or or may become one. But I think the discussions about the public health approach were succinctly described by Dr. Matt Miller, National Director of the Suicide Prevention for the Department of Veterans Affairs in episode two. I think what's not working is over-reliance on, to the exclusion of the other, an over-reliance on clinically-based interventions to the exclusion of community-based interventions. And conversely, an over-reliance on community-based interventions to the exclusion of continuing to attend to that which we can do in furthering clinically-based interventions. 
What's also not working is when there's no plus sign between the clinically based and the community based. They're not talking or coordinating together. There's a gap. There's no plus sign unifying them. Hearing that from Dr. Miller early on in the series helped me understand the different aspects of this throughout the series. And like I said, has influenced my work in my local community. But I think this goes to our conversation with coordination and collaboration. Rather than vertical integration not happening, horizontal integration may not be happening either. Yeah, I know that you have been for some years as well among the group of people that understands the importance of a public health approach. I have privately been writing about this for a number of years. I didn't have those words for it. And so when I, for example, wrote an article back in 2016, it was called Crisis Response Models Are Not Sufficient. We Need a Communal Response to Crisis. That was the words I had for what now people have articulated as the public health approach, because it's not enough to just have a get thee to the doctor approach. We really need an all hands on deck approach. And I had been working towards this and writing about this and really not aware that there was this larger group of people that were saying similar things at the same time in different words that I was using. And this public health approach was really well articulated by a number of guests on the show in terms of needing this all hands on deck Everybody has a role to play. Dr. Keita Franklin has been a leader in this. One of my favorite quotes of hers is that there are no wrong doors. And I love that because I think that really goes to the heart of there's not just one path here and not one way to find healing. And people really need their tribe. And so if you have a trusted doc or a healer, that's part of your solution potentially, but it can't replace a vigorous, active, vital community of people that you walk with during the challenging times in your life. Yeah, I agree. There's this idea of if you have community interventions that aren't at least clinically informed, then things can go off the rails quickly. People say people won't die by suicide if you buy my coffee or use my soap. And not to be facetious, but there's this idea of if it's all community without clinical information, then they're missing some very significant components. It may have to do with that coordination and collaboration. But at the same time, if we're operating clinically without connection to a community approach, then we're operating in a vacuum as well. And again, I, I think for me, and it was really great for me to hear that, and I think for listeners to hear that early on in the show, is to set it up as that equation needs to be clinical interventions plus community interventions equals suicide prevention. A hundred percent. Sometimes I think there's this sort of question that's implicit of which is more powerful or beneficial professional mental health care or peer support and community-based care. And I just, I reject the premise of that. I just think people should form up in teams like they do in special forces units, in the army, in the Marine Corps, they form fire teams. They form up in teams and then each person plays their role. And that combined arms approach is going to be the most effective. There is another kind of thought I had related to this around the likelihood of having mental health challenges at some point in our lives. I had a really interesting interaction with a veteran. I had sent him a copy of my book and he posted something on LinkedIn and, and said, the start of the post said, can I be vulnerable for a minute? Is it okay? And then he acknowledged that he's been struggling, having some challenges, some mental health challenges. And we will know that this whole paradigm, this whole thing has shifted when people no longer have any concern about saying, it's been hard lately. 
I've been struggling. I was thinking last night as I was drifting off about that conversation with him on LinkedIn and thinking, wait a second, like what kind of a person, what sort of an arrogant person would say that in our physical bodies, you're expected to go through your whole life and never have a physical health challenge, never have an accumulated impact of all the things that you've put your body through and all the things that the wear and tear, it's never expected to show up as an impact. It just doesn't make any sense for me when people tend to think it's the exception to the rule that there are times of mental health challenge. And having been on the side of the veil where people come to you and me, and they talk about times they've struggled with suicide, times they've been really depressed or had panic attacks, corporate leaders, athletes, heads of business come and they, they talk about these things behind closed doors. And so you and I have a unique perspective, Dwayne, because we know mental health challenges at different times in your life, that's the norm. That's war fighters. Having thoughts of self-destruction, that's common. And so really shifting people towards the understanding that's a human universal will help people maybe to, to see that there's just, it's part of acknowledging I'm human not confessing something that's unusual or atypical. I think that in in really tying that back to the public health approach, I think of other issues of whether it's a question of should I suggest that someone wears their seatbelt when they get in my car to no, put your seatbelt on. Right. Not to may I be vulnerable, but I'm going to be vulnerable here because it's normal. Or should I really take their keys when they've been drinking? No, there's a bowl next to the door. You're going to put the keys there. So I like that idea of shifting from an uncertainty about addressing these topics to maybe that's right. When we get to establishing this public health approach, that there is no uncertainty anymore. There's just action. That's not a criticism of that veteran. The fact that he said, is it okay?" means that we as a society don't understand that's normal and that's common. And that's what needs to shift, not the individual. It made me a little bit sad that right now we're still positioning this as what is atypical. For whom among us has this year not sucked? And who has not had struggles from time to time with feeling isolation? I know I certainly have. So I just, I think that's a shift. It just made me feel like there's work we all need to do together. Yeah, I agree. Another theme that really emerged is the fact about the risk factors and warning signs. In any discussion about suicide prevention, risk factors and warning signs are always going to come up. People want to know the signs. How do I identify the risk factors that lead to suicide? And that's the elusive goal of suicide prevention in that there's no common set of warning signs or risk factors. In episode 40, Marine Corps combat veteran David Bachman gives us his thoughts on some unique risk factors. I think it's the perfect storm scenario I think most people go through and they have this grief in them. And then there's little bitty things that just work up to create this perfect storm. And then Marines aren't scared to pull the trigger. So it kind of is what it is. But I think people seek help from people who can't relate. I think lots of time guys try to talk to their wives or a family member or somebody that hasn't been where we've been. And I don't think they always get the right reaction because everybody thinks that suicide is something that's just extremely selfish act. And a lot of times with veterans, I don't think it is so much. I think it's more of them thinking of themselves as a threat and not being scared to take out that threat. 
And so I think it's important for us to understand the need to have these conversations and recognize that there are risk factors that are unique to the service member veteran military family population, just like the risk factors that David was talking about in that quote. Yeah. And you've written about this too, like in military in the rearview mirror, you talk about the cultural factors around transition from the military. In my book, Warrior, this is why I wrote Warrior in large part to help people understand that there's a unique psychology among our nation's warfighters and service members, and that there's some interesting vulnerabilities, actually. And the Achilles heel of warriors is not the same as perhaps the Achilles heel for, for many civilians. So I think, I feel very strongly that if we don't understand a problem from the cultural frame, using the cultural values and psychology of a particular group, it's going to guarantee that our interventions are not going to land. And so Bachman, I was so happy that we brought him on as he's somebody that represents lived experience, but he's had so much loss as a Marine in 2-7. And as part of the group that I've been privileged to be part of, we've together seen over the years that these private reunions have been hosted by Marines, for Marines. I've been part of that group with them. It's been amazing to see what is possible in terms of suicide prevention, in terms of keeping people in the fight, if we understand their psychology and what works for them. So absolutely, with so many of our warfighters, people who think suicide is selfish have really kind of missed the boat on understanding the psychology of suicide among many warfighters. It's a, a tragic act, and it leaves devastating collateral damage for loved ones and military brothers and sisters. It increases risk of other people dying by suicide, but it isn't coming from a selfish motive. It's actually coming from a mode of protecting other people or perceiving. So what I write about in Warrior is really understanding how the warrior ethos can be twisted when someone is at the end of the tunnel to put them at great risk for suicide. And David is such a clear voice in that to speak to how that can happen. And I appreciate that. And I think also when we talk about these risk and warning signs, we have to walk a fine line in not stigmatizing maybe the culture and saying that the culture, just because someone is in this culture, makes them automatically that they're at risk. We don't want to increase the the crazy combat vet paradigm that a lot of people might have. Uh, and so I think that it's really important for us to say, yes, there are unique warning signs and risk factors to this population. That doesn't mean that everyone in this population is this one thing. It's difficult sometimes, I think, to balance that. It is 100%. But the thing is that once you understand the psychology of warfighters and service members, then you actually understand what you have in terms of ammunition for mental warfare. And if you understand how things can get perverted at the end of the tunnel, you also gain clarity on what you can do that will really get traction with mental warfare. So I think your work and, and my work together can hopefully bring some new insights to that conversation. I absolutely agree. If people are working with this particular population, similar populations, they need to be aware that this is a risk factor and it's not also indicative of the entire population. This, and like I said, theme is one that had emerged from many of our different guests. Another thing that emerged from our guests is you and I have talked about a couple times in the show and often offline is the need to move from passive resource offering, call us if you need us, to active resource provision. I see that you're struggling 
struggling, here's something that can help. Uh, many of our guests talked about the need to reach out and support others and how to do that. In episode 19, retired Major General Mark Graham, Executive Director of Vets for Warriors, talks about how helping veterans understand that they're not the only ones dealing with these issues can really be beneficial. So often when we get phone calls, the, the caller will think that they're the only one that's struggling with this. So they do feel isolated. They feel like it's me, you know, what's going on? I, you know, I need it. I need this. I need that. My mind's spinning. I can't sleep. So will we help them know, hey, look, this is pretty normal with what you're going through. So let's figure this out together. Let's work together on this. And then we connect them resources. We follow up and see how that's going. And we continue to work with them. So nearly half of our guests mentioned the need to reach out to support others rather than waiting for the person in crisis to reach out for support that's needed. Because people who are in crisis have an interesting kind of tunnel vision effect where they, they narrow their perspective to what is directly in front of them, that sense of threat or that sense of despair. It's a tunnel of despair, really, that's in front of them. One of the ways I've really come to realize this has actually been, interestingly enough, through the work I've done with stellate ganglion block. Now, when people have gotten a stellate ganglion block, it's been a theme among patients afterwards that they've said, I can see more of the things around me now. The colors in the room are brighter and I can take in more of the things in my environment. And I think that is because I was talking to one of the docs that we work with who does this and he said it's the elimination of foveal vision. Foveal vision meaning that there's a literal tunnel vision effect when you feel a sense of trauma or unaddressed threat. And so when people are calm again, they are then able to relax and expand out. So this relates to this conversation because when people are in crisis, the last thing on their mind is all the thousands of possible resources and ways they can get help. They disconnect from their loved ones and from sources of support. That's kind of part of that suicidal mode. As Craig Bryan and Annabelle Bryan have talked about, the suicidal mode is an altered state of consciousness. And so the passive resource offering really fails to understand that people are in this state of consciousness where they're unaware of their supports and their resources and the people that love them and need them to stay in the fight and all of the ways that they can walk out of that tunnel. The walls are closing in. And so when they get the right support, they are able to shift dramatically off that. And one of the patients that I'm, I'm thinking of right now, he had gotten a stellate ganglion block and he said, I forgot how beautiful the world is when my brain stops telling me it's trying to kill me. And so there's a mindset thing that we need to understand in being proactive about saying, here's a way that we can address this. There are effective treatments that work. Here are options. Yes. And, and I think this is a big theme for me is that when somebody is in crisis, at the point when they're least able to make life-saving steps, we want them to take life-saving steps. And again, there's this theme for me is really looking at this from other ways, but we don't put our seatbelt on right before we get into an accident, like we're anticipating the accident. It's the last time that we have the ability to do something like put our seatbelt on. We have to put our seatbelt on in order to prevent or, or to save lives in the midst of an accident. And so I think there's this idea that if the individual's in trouble, they just 
just reach out for help and it's going to be there. And if there's far enough in crisis or rapidly progressing to crisis, they're not going to get the fire extinguisher if they're on fire. That's it. They're not in that mind state to be even aware of what's around them. Yes. And again, it was really encouraging to me that not just General Graham, but again, nearly half of the guests mentioned this of reaching out for help. Gene Somers, how are you doing today? Or other things like that to be able to say, look, you're hurting. I have some resources. Let me listen to your story about why you're hurting and then give you some resources. And so I think that was really great that that emerged. Something similar and really one of the things I think that stops that from happening is stigma. So reducing stigma was uh, yet another theme. It was one of the largest things that came out. It's reducing stigma against help seeking and about suicide in general that really emerged. In episode 13, Kim Ruwako, Vice President of Suicide Prevention and Postvention for TAPS, indicates that we need to change the conversation about this in order to make a real difference. We need to get way upstream and having them talk about mental health and wellness whenever they're in military academies, when they're in boot camps, when they're first coming in for training, it needs to be an integral part of how they train and they need to be given resources, tactics, and an expectation that mental health challenges are going to be part of what they're going to experience that everybody experiences them, just normalize it. This is one perspective on how we need to start talking about this issue early and often to be able to address this topic before people get into crisis. But then it goes back to your earlier conversation of, I jumped out of airplanes 38 too many times. I know that I'm going to lose an inch in height and hurt myself a lot. We need to understand that psychologically things are going to take a toll as well. Yeah, it's 100%. Kim said, I deeply agree with that. We have to get to the problem before it ever even materializes. And it's about equipping our warriors and their families with an understanding before it ever becomes a problem. And so I really think if we can get this into training, this awareness, because the other half of the equation is it isn't good enough to say that we have the responsibility for recognizing signs of risk. I I think it's important to have that as part of the conversation. It's good for people to be aware of signs of distress, but I think it also misses the point that within the military population, warriors are professionally good at compartmentalizing their pain. So many times, unfortunately, the theme is that people are devastated after a suicide loss because they didn't know how much that person was suffering, because that person appeared to be just fine and operating at a high level, very capable, and they were locking it away and they were compartmentalizing their hidden pain. And so the elimination of stigma is critical because it helps people shift to an understanding of before a problem becomes a crisis, let me instinctively turn towards my tribe. Let me understand mental warfare before I'm ever in the grips of it. And let me know what my best ammunition is for fighting this before it becomes a problem. Yeah. And I think that, again, we don't address other things in our lives in this way where we just don't talk about it until it becomes a big problem. And then all of a sudden we have to address it. We prepare for things in the military. We train, we we drill, even in our work as clinical mental health providers. And we have case consultation. We talk to each other about potential cases and different things 
things that come up. We have training in our programs to prepare us for potential situations. Just about, I think, it, baristas have training to be able to prepare for the coffee that they pour before they get in front of a customer, hopefully. And so it's one of those things that we do this in other areas, but it's the internal stigma, what we think about it ourselves, and then the external stigma, either what others think or what we think others think, that keeps us from preparing ahead of time. Yeah, I think another shift that's going to bring us there is for people to understand that trauma exposure causes biological changes in the brain that we can now see on brain scans. So if you have a sophisticated enough brain scan, like an fMRI, you can use that technology to look at the brain and a healed brain will look different from an injured brain. And so as we shift to this understanding that trauma is a biological injury that is maintained by changes in how we think and behave and relate to others, it opens up a new model where we can understand, again, going back to the first part of this conversation, that we all have a role to play, that people like you and me coming in and sharing what we have to offer to help people reorganize their thinking, the way they behave, the way they relate in their closest relationships and support that well is a critical part of intervention and support of people. But it also is part of a bigger team effort where medicine really is a, it's a team sport. Yeah, I agree. Whenever I sit down with a client, one of the first conversations when the first two or three sessions is the neurological basis of trauma and PTSD. We talk about the amygdala, we talk about the hippocampus, we talk about neuroplasticity. So a veteran will come in and say, they tell me it's all in my head. Well, it's true because it's all in your brain, right? I mean, that's the issue. And once I explain that to veterans, they're like, whoa, it's it's the same thing as a busted knee or a, a cracked rib. And then they say, okay, well, I understand where this is coming from now and we move forward. So again, I, I think that's, yes, another way that we're going to, to move this along. And so those were five themes, right? These five themes that we came up in, and that was just the beginning of the conversation. Some of the other areas that were themes that many guests talked about were lethal means safety, both treatment and community-based approaches to suicide prevention, the importance of connectedness, and the stories of suicide loss and attempt survivors. Now, this obviously isn't going to be the last time that we, Shauna and I, get into these conversations. And we'll hope that you keep an eye out more for things coming down the line. So as we wrap up, Shauna, maybe just some last thoughts. I think one of the, the big takeaways that I had for this whole series is that really there is no one solution nor one solution bearer and that different people with different wisdom have something to offer and that it's really by treating the the care of those who are suffering as one mission that we're really going to to move this forward. So that's my one kind of thought as we wrap up this really fun and important project. I think that's one of the things I realized as we're going forward, and I probably mentioned a couple episodes, is the name of the project is a misnomer, seeking the military suicide solution. That's the joke for everybody at the end, to be able to say, we've been seeking the military suicide solution, and there isn't one. Maybe we're seeking the military suicide solutions, right? Maybe that's the, the, the change that we have here. But I absolutely agree. Even in this project, it wasn't just a solo person project, not just you and I, but obviously Dee. We want to thank Dee for the work that she's done to moderate our Facebook group, folks at Military Times, but also just the support that we have from all of our guests. I think that even just this project shows that this is a team sport. So we appreciate everybody taking the time to check out the show. 
not just this episode, but the entire series. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS50 or by downloading the app by searching STMSS in the Apple app or Google Play stores. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1, chatting online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about Seeking the Military Suicide Solution. Make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest episodes. Join us next time for another great conversation. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.